Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Ashley Piggott. Ashley is a director at AJ Power, a designer and volume manufacturer of diesel generating sets based in Craigavon, Northern Ireland. Ashley, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Yeah, good morning, and thank you. Good morning, Ashley, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to come onto the air with us this morning. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast series is to gather together a variety of different views on leadership. And leadership, it's fair to say, is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the COVID-19 situation and different business leaders having to really feel their way through this pandemic. Tell me, for somebody working in your line of work, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been a real challenge in some ways. It's been very challenging. Um, our quarter one figures uh, to the end of March were very good. And uh, <clears throat> as a company, we um, distribute our product to approximately 80 countries in the world. And we're seeing different phases uh, of the pandemic uh, that countries are in. Um, sales were quite poor in, in, in April, but they have started to recover. And um, we're now starting to see uh, business activity coming from Australia, New Zealand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar, uh, which is helping us quite a lot. Um, From a manufacturing perspective, it's been very, very difficult. Um, To a certain extent, uh, the furlough scheme has been a little bit counterproductive to us because uh, the loss of some of our smaller suppliers has had a chain reaction and we've been constantly having to adapt and um, and rewrite production programs on a, on a literally daily basis. But we've stayed with it and um, we're actually making good progress and things are starting to, to normalize to a certain extent. Um, from a from a health and safety perspective, we've had to make some modifications, but thankfully not too many. It's certainly testing the ability of business this point in time to be proactive and to be reactive, isn't it? Because business has to be able to plan for the future. It has to plan for certain eventualities, but government guidance does have the capacity to change quite quickly and then measured and quite often snap decisions do have to come from business as a result of that. Um, If we think about proactivity and reactivity as um, a leadership approach, Ashley, would you describe yourself as somebody who does like to dive straight in and get on top of difficulties as soon as possible when they arise? Or do you tend to take a little bit of a backseat and let things play out a bit before taking action? there well we, t- we tend to very much uh, assess the situation and uh, because part of our business model um, is based on flexibility uh, and speed uh, we do then react very very quickly to the changing environment um, while we do have um, very strategic long-term plans um, the, the, the flexibility of the company has, has been a huge advantage in, in, in this time. Mm, that's um, certainly uh, good to hear from a uh, business uh, point of view. And 
we've heard a lot of stories as well during this time that business employees have really got on with the task at hand and really mucked in and got the job done for the uh, the benefit of the business, whether they've had to continue working on site or whether they've had to adapt to working remotely. Um, do you think it there are some positives to be taken from that in that people are really bringing out the best in themselves and really mucking in and helping out them at this point in time? Uh, we took a very, very early decision to um, keep the business open. Um, we engaged with all our, our um, factory operatives and direct labour. And um, they have, initially, they, there was a lot of concerns in respect of uh, the pandemic, but they really have um, um, come behind the company and worked very, very hard to, to actually uh come through it uh with us and um i have actually been thanked uh on repeated occasions over the last uh, couple of weeks for keeping the business open and keeping purpose in in people's lives so it's been uh quite a positive effect in 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 the business from a morale perspective we have had to um reduce the numbers of uh, our office employees and we have a lot of people working from home so there has been quite a strain on 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 the office, uh, but uh, early mornings, late nights, uh, again, everybody has uh, uh, risen to the challenge. Has it been a challenge um, maintaining um, positive communication as well, which is also quite important in leadership from a distance? Has um, it been quite an easy transition going over to that sort of remote working and keeping in contact from that point of view? Uh, it's but that that has been diffi- that has been the most difficult thing. Um, but we're now pretty well on top of it, and um, uh, we we think over the, the next month or so uh, that some of the um, uh, particularly sales staff that that are offsite today will come in and um, um, for short periods and um, and and brief us, but. Um, that has been been the biggest issue of, of how to actually, without having the, the human interaction of of an office based environment, uh, that's been 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 quite a, a different um, sort of scenario where you can't have group meetings and, and bring um, <clears throat> uh, various uh, departments together in, into one room. But we've managed, and um, we're getting better at it. I think we've taken that human contact for granted in a way, haven't we? And um, if we think back to times when that was something that we did take for granted and um, we were able to have that um, essentially five or seven days of the week, however often you may be in the office, were there any people that you've maybe worked with in your career, Ashley, or worked for or looked up to that have maybe been an inspiration to you as you developed through your career? Um, I think it would have to give you a very, very quick pressy uh, of my career to answer that. Um, I started working for a small engineering uh, family-owned business called F.G. Wilson that employed 12 people in 1973, just before the coal miners' strike. Um, I learned more in six months about all aspects of business that most people wouldn't get in a lifetime. And the company transitioned to manufacture and export initially the Middle East and, and then worldwide. And when the company was sold in 1994 to Emerson Electric, that's a $15 billion US multinational that had 2,000 employees. 
uh, and seven overseas subsidiaries. Um, apart from two years on secondment with Emerson uh, Corporate HQ, uh, I stayed with the business until it was acquired by Caterpillar. Two outstanding leaders, um, highly successful, that I had the privilege to serve. One was Fred Wilson, the owner of the family business, um, affectionately known as FG. Charismatic, um, great ability to see opportunity, uh, and he taught you to look at things from a very different angle. Utilize resources at your disposal, and it was very much um, the need for speed. Uh, contrasting that, um, uh, Chuck Knight, who was the chairman of Emerson Electric for 40 years, was a meticulous uh, strategist, um, and he was pretty ruthless in the execution of plans and the measurement of performance. Um, both outstanding people, and uh, I can quite honestly say I learned uh, everything that I know today from from both individuals. Which has served me well over the last last two months. It certainly shows, doesn't it, that um, leadership can come in many, many different forms and with many different faces. Um, you've named there two very different leaders with very different approaches who are both tremendously good at what they do. And if we think about that for um, a moment, um, we often think of leadership in the UK, especially, as being associated with celebrity don't we um people in the public eye politicians for example mm-hmm. and sometimes i think that good leaders within the business world whatever their, the approach they may take can often almost be overlooked as a result of that um do you think that we do recognize good leadership in business as much as maybe we should do in the uk as a whole uh generally not um what we tend to see um are um, let, let us say the self-publicists um, uh, associate the business. Um, it's uh, you know it's not sexy in inverted commas, um, but there are a, a lot of very very good uh, business leaders and um, leading very very successful companies. And uh, I think, in all honesty, they don't get enough credit uh, across the board for what they do for the for the for the country and the economy. Uh, generally it's perhaps because they don't necessarily stick their head above the parapet and they tend to play that role of business leader mentor who just gets on with things behind the scenes and produces results that's exactly correct um um it's you know sometimes it's a situation that um uh, it's you know blowing the trumpet. It, it's, it's 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 a dangerous game. You know politicians can frequently uh, give the praise when things are going well and um, and uh, uh, fire the bullets in inverted commas whenever things aren't so good. Um, it's, it's it's the nature of business. Um, there are good days and bad days, and I think a lot of people, a lot of um, um, captains of industry tend to stay very low profile in in today's world. And if we think about what the future holds now, Ashley, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for AJ Power and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time, but also for when we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and your ambitions for beyond that period. Well, 
We have um, um, facilities here, and we also have um, um, subsidiaries in in South Africa, Sweden, uh, and Dubai. Uh, we start from a base of, of managing our way through this for what we believe will be the next uh, three months, and, and I do state clearly that there there are significant differences uh, uh, due to the politics of each country. Um, we're very positive. Um, we have plans in place for expansion here, and uh, we are very much engaged in um, building new facilities um, and trying to, to grow the business uh, in the future. Uh, the next three to three or four months are going to be very, very tough. Uh, of that, there's no doubt. Um, but we're very positive that we can move the business forward. Uh, successfully uh, over the next 12 months and um, looking at a, a cycle slightly longer than that we're, we're, we're trying to actually really plan for the next five years uh, both in the human sense and in the facility sense uh, so we're very positive what can be done but the next three or four months without doubt will be very very difficult and uh, for all businesses and um, I think it's just a question, you you know, it's a wee bit of old-fashioned management. Uh, you have to um, have a rainy day money sitting back behind you and um, and uh, uh, try to take your business forward. I think that's absolutely right. And it's good to hear that there is some positivity and um, a real sort of upward plan for the business, despite all the uncertainty, Ashley. And even though we are just about out of time today, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps in the next year have you back on the programme just to catch up with the expansions and see how the business is getting on. Yeah, well, once we get through COVID, uh, the next little issue will be be the Brexit scenario. So Mm -hmm. um, hopefully that uh, uh, has a positive outcome as well. For certain. And that would be really appreciated. Yeah, fingers crossed um, on that as well for sure um, Ashley I have to say I mean it's been a real pleasure and also a real insightful experience having you on uh, the programme with us today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on to the air and speak with me for the listeners benefit it's been very enjoyable yep. thank you very much indeed thank you Ashley do take care and do stay safe as yep. well and you too stay safe bye bye That was Ashley Piggott, director at AJ Power. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the chief executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in, uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course, it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that 
we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, So whether that is face-to-face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, But we're going through uh, a number of of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a a, a, a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, It's it's very challenging um, to... um, kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world so uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally so um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post-Brexit and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Elizabeth, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think that the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the um, 
I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's, go- it's, just, it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is, is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, companies can try all they all they might, but it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. We, we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um now, looking at a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole <laughs> here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that's, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK um, savers and, uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still, there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're, we're still, uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied, um, or will be tied to the, um, European rulemaking, um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for, for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know, the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book 
that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an, uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of, uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. Absolutely. Um, and it will be a, a interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part, I, I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that 
you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I, I know there's no such thing as a, a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if, let's imagine, let's, let's imagine you did have one, just for, the, just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that, uh, system, and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might well not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, wh what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I would, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm -hmm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that then everybody will be will be better off Great. now I'm conscious of the time here this is already catching up with us so perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um, uh, the operations of PIMFOR again it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organizations can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organizations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. Mm. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfa has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers 
on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision mm-hmm. because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental wellbeing uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.